0: Testing one two three. Testing one two three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Bill Reel and I will be looking at the Book of Abraham, and specifically, we'll be looking at Book of Abraham apologetics. Why they don't work. A lot has been written about the Book of Abraham over the course of the last century a lot of it written by LDS scholars, a lot of it written by apologists for the book of Abraham, attempting to prove it is ancient and authentic. We are going to be looking at those arguments tonight, seeing where they make sense, where they don't make sense. And basically, we're going to be trying to take a massive, massive subject, which has generated thousands of pages of scholarly literature with footnotes, and boiling it down into something that will be easily understood and digestible by the lay person who is not an Egyptologist.
1: Hello, Bill. How are you doing? So I'm doing great, R.F.M. and uh, and I'm really excited to jump into this uh, this topic. This is this is that issue in Mormonism that the critics say is the death nail, and yet the issue is so complex that it's difficult for the average member to wield their way into this uh, topic. And so today I hope we can, um, again, like you put it out, let's put it in layman's terms. Let's explain things succinctly. Let's help the listener understand where the church has maybe some strength in its argument, where the critic has some value in its argument, uh, and dissect these issues one by one. Okay, really good.
0: Let's start with an extremely brief history of the book of Abraham And did you want to do that, Bill, or did you want me to?
1: No, let me tackle that. Um, So, and the reason, I think you're going to come off much more informed in this conversation than I am. So let me steal a few minutes here and there where I can. So in, I believe, uh, 1835 in Kirtland, Ohio, Uh, Michael Chandler is a gentleman, that name may ring a bell with some. We've heard this name before when we've talked about the book of Abraham uh, within church curriculum. Michael Chandler shows up in Kirtland, Ohio with some mummies and some papyri. And uh, Joseph Smith is interested, the church is interested, because here's these old documents. Uh, So Joseph Smith and the church end up purchasing... uh, Some of the mummies and the papyri. It looks like there's four scrolls purchased for a price of $2,400. You and I were talking this morning. That is the equivalent today of about $67,000 if you take into account inflation. The pieces that look like they were purchased were the whore scroll, uh, which is I think the main piece we're going to be talking about. But then there's also four mummies, a book of the dead scroll made for a woman named Shemin, a Book of the Dead fragment bearing the female name Neferinib. Uh, another fragment bearing the ma- uh, name Amenai Hoptop. Man, I'm going to obviously chop these to pieces. These Egyptian dead people are going to be deeply offended, RFM. And is, a, that, uh, is that Amenhotep by any chance? Amenhotep. There you go. Thank you so much. I watched uh, a lot of mummy movies when I was a kid. That's how I know. So a fragment bearing the male name of Amenhotep. Uh, and a a hypocephalus uh, belonging to a man named Shishonk to Joseph Smith in July 1835, again for the price of $2,400. Joseph Smith then takes uh, these documents and says one of them uh, is a record of Abraham. And Joseph Smith then begins to uh, work on a translation which becomes the book of Abraham, which we are going to jump into today. It should at least be noted that on the onset of this, everyone involved here would have had the cultural idea, um, that would be displaced soon after, but that Egyptian was a, essentially an untranslatable language that nobody as of yet had the ability to translate it. Uh, meanwhile, on the, uh, In in another location, we've got this discovery of the Rosetta Stone, and in a few short years, uh, Egyptian is going to become translatable. But at the time they're working on this, there's no way to understand Egyptian except by the gift and power of God.
0: Right. My understanding is that the Rosetta Stone was discovered at the very end of the 1700s. It was cracked by Champollion in 1822, but that only began... The study of Egyptian and its being able to be translated into English, which was not able to be done by scholars and with any degree of facility until the 1850s, which, as you say, is well after Joseph Smith produces his translation of the papyrus into the book of Abraham. I also just wanted to make it clear that whereas you are identifying the different scrolls that Joseph Smith bought, he had no idea that those were actually the names of the scrolls, because you have to be able to read Egyptian to know that those are the names of the scrolls and what they relate to. That's something that scholars have found out way, way, way after the fact. But Joseph Smith himself identified these scrolls as containing the writings of the of Abraham, and also the writings of Joseph, which apparently he never got around to translating, but he did identify at least two of the scrolls, as being the writings of Abraham, another the writings of Joseph. Significantly, of course, those are the two Old Testament characters with ties to Egypt. So, of course, if it's going to be Egyptian, which these are found with Egyptian mummies, and they are Egyptian scrolls, and they are going to be needing to be associated with somebody in the Bible who is already connected by the Bible stories with Egypt. So there's Abraham, there's Joseph— we have the Book of Abraham, and we're ready to go from there.
1: Perfect. So let's start off with this idea of why the critics um, see the Book of Abraham as a problem. And it should be noted that when this translation was completed, uh, we we had thought as as a Mormon a uh, culture of understanding its history and those involved in that quest, we had thought that this uh, these papyri uh, fragments had fallen into the hands of the Chicago Museum. There was the Great Chicago Fire in 1871, and we had thought that those papyri fragments were lost. That's where they were at. It turns out in 19, I believe, 65, 66, 67, these papyri fragments resurfaced, if I'm not mistaken, at the Metropolitan Museum.
0: Yes, the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art.
1: Yeah, beautiful. And so the fragments are discovered there. The The folks there recognize somehow that these belong to uh, the history of Mormonism and a, a reach out and essentially the church reaches back and would love to have them. So the fragments make their uh, way back into the possession of the church. When these get back into the possession of the church, scholars in and out of the church as they see these images recognize that this is just a standard Egyptian funerary text. The translation uh, of these texts has nothing to do with Abraham. The facsimiles that are included in our Pearl of Great Price appear to be deeply translated incorrectly in dozens and dozens of places. Um, Definitely not the writings of Abraham written by his own hand, which is the church's imposition on these documents. And so the critics are saying, look, here it is. This is the nail in the coffin. Uh, The book of Abraham is not uh, what Joseph said it was, and it seems to be completely unrelated to these Egyptian papyri. Um, Any thoughts there, uh, RFM? Right. I just want to make this absolutely clear because
0: this is the critical issue relating to the book of Abraham is that the papyri that Joseph Smith used, or at least fragments of them that Joseph Smith used, we'll go into a little more detail later, that Joseph Smith used to translate the book of Abraham have nothing whatsoever to do with the text of Joseph Smith's book of Abraham. In fact, The church was put into a position where it published an essay dealing with the historicity of the book of Abraham on the church's website. I believe it went up in 2014. And once again, because this information was getting out there because of the Internet so much and affecting members' testimonies and blowing them up and causing them to become disaffected, they wanted to try and address the issue themselves. And in that essay that is on the church website, the church itself acknowledges that there is nothing in the papyri that has anything to do with the text of the book of Abraham. There's no mention even of the book of Abraham on the papyri and they are completely separate and different things.
1: Yeah. And I, and I also want to note cause I think as we go through this, we need to recognize that goalposts are being moved, that we're changing positions. And I think we'll see that clearly as we move forward. I just want to note that in the introduction Uh, To I believe it's the Pearl of Great Price, um, but it may be just the introduction to the book of Abraham itself. The church has always held a certain position until this papyri uh, resurfaces and the church itself has to re-examine its original position and begin to make a change. The the original heading said, A translation of some uh, ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt, purporting to be the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt, called the book of Abraham, written by his own hand upon papyrus. Um, that heading has been changed uh, since then. Uh, but we need to recognize that the church absolutely, no ifs, ands, or buts, until this papyri surfaced, the the view the church held was that these were this, this papyri was the writings of Abraham written by his own hand um, and and became essentially the English version of the book of Abraham. Right. And I want to go ahead and quote, since I referenced the church
0: essay to a certain effect earlier, I want to quote from the church essay right now so that you can see I am not making this up. And you can look it up on the church's website if you can find it, it's about three clicks deep on the essay about the book of Abraham. Quote, this is the church's position on the church website. None of the characters on the papyrus fragments mention Abraham's name or any of the events recorded in the book of Abraham. Then it goes on. Mormon and non-Mormon Egyptologists agree that the characters on the fragments do not match the translation given in the book of Abraham. So when this was discovered back in 1966 and the church acquired possession of these fragments in 1967, and by the way, there's an interesting little footnote to that. The Metropolitan Museum of Art didn't just give them to the church. They received an anonymous donation, anonymous donation. I'm not sure how much that anonymous donation was for, but money changed hands. From this anonymous donor to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, in exchange for that, the church got the 10 fragments, okay? And let me just talk a little bit about this. I don't want to go out in the weeds, but I find this fascinating. The church got the 10 fragments. Now, there are 11 fragments that we have. So where does that extra 11th fragment come from? Well, that actually came from the church, because all of a sudden, when all this is happening, the church looks into the vault that they have, you know, the one that contained Joseph Smith's 1832 account of the first vision, that what that vault? And probably the seer stone, too. It did. It had the seer stone in there as well. Well, also in there was kept under lock and key a separate fragment of papyrus scroll that Joseph Smith had used in translating the Book of Abraham. So that was produced, and along with that was the Kirtland Egyptian Papers which we'll talk about a little bit more, which are the papers that were the working documents that Joseph Smith used in order to translate the book of Abraham from the papyrus. So the church has had this all along, but now all of a sudden this comes forward. And by the way, another footnote is the church didn't volunteer this out of its own goodwill and out of the goodness of its heart. Once again, the tanners were involved. Did you know this, Bill?
1: Yeah, I I knew that the tanners uh, were aware and that there was an effort from outside the church to try to get these, and then suddenly the church was able to procure possession of them.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to me. It's exactly the same thing that happened with the 1832 account of the first vision, which Joseph Fielding Smith had found decades before, cut out of the, the letter book in which it was contained, stuffed it in his safe to keep it secret. And so then in the 1960s, Word of its existence leaks. The tanners start putting public pressure on the church, and lo and behold, it gets found again. And I'm putting found in quotation marks. Well, the exact same thing had been going on at the exact same time with relation to the Kirtland Egyptian papers, that a copy of that, a typescript copy of that had been leaked. Tanners got a hold of it. They're starting to be vocal about it. And once again, here comes in the mid-1960s, oh, look what we found in our safe. Well, we have this in addition to this 11th papyrus fragment, which we've had all along. One last thing I'm going to note here is that the reason that these papyrus fragments were originally identified as being part of Joseph Smith's papyrus is because the guy who found them and looked at them knew enough about Mormonism and knew enough about The book of Abraham to be able to look at facsimile number one, which is contained on one of the papyrus fragments, facsimile number one in the book of Abraham, the lion couch scene and say, hey, that looks like this could be what Joseph Smith had. He was able to make that connection, but also to clinch the case, these papyrus fragments, when they were purchased by Joseph Smith, they want to preserve them, obviously, right? And they can't just preserve them as scrolls very well. So what they did was they took them, they rolled them out, they pasted them to other paper in order to keep them flat, in order to try and preserve them. It would be like taking something like papyrus, which is extremely destructible and easy to break off and crumble, and pasting them to cardboard, something like that kind of idea in order to make it so that they are better able to be preserved, at least by the standards of the 1830s. So we give them credit for that. Now, when these fragments are found in the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, if you flip them over on the back of at least some of the fragments, is what was written on the paper that they used in order to paste the papyrus to. I hope I'm being clear enough about this. Do you understand what I'm saying, Bill? No, no. Let's, let's rephrase, uh, reframe that again,
1: just uh, just so people
0: are clear. Okay. Joseph Smith or his associates take the papyrus, roll them out, and mount them on other paper in order to preserve them. Does that part make sense? Yeah. You're increasing the thickness, and you're making it so it's just not papyri alone, which can be crumbled. It's a good idea. But the paper that was used wasn't clean paper. It had already been used, apparently, for another purpose. So when you you can see the paper if you flip the papyrus over, and on the reverse side of the papyrus, on the paper that was used to mount it, is a map of the city of Kirtland, Ohio. Gotcha. Okay, so that's a huge clue. That's a huge tell that, yeah, these may look like the papyrus that Joseph Smith used, but dang, if we look
1: at the paper it was mounted on Kirtland, Ohio, yeah, it's a clinch. Yeah, ends up being a dead ringer. And so essentially what the two of us have said over the like the last maybe eight minutes or so, we're trying to frame this, is that the church, uh, so in the times and seasons, it is said that these are the writings of Abraham written by his own hand. That is shows up in the times and seasons as this project is happening. The church, in its heading to the book of Abraham, says that this is a translation of some ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt, the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt, called the book of Abraham, written by his own hand upon papyrus. Today, as RFM clearly laid out from the gospel topic essay, the church, both everyone inside the church as well as everyone outside the church, now agrees. That the papyri we have in possession does not lead to that conclusion. We acknowledge, again, both inside and outside the church, the church itself on its own gospel topic essay acknowledges that this papyri does not match being the book of Abraham, does not match being written by Abraham, written by his own hand. Um, It it certainly is not that. So now we are in a conundrum where we have to come up with different solutions to this issue. Uh, Knowing that, the church has had to reframe this and come up with apologetic answers, both through its apologetic arm of the church, uh, apologists such as John Gee, Carrie Molstein, um... Uh, Fair Mormon, as an entity, uh, and others have tried to create plausible ways in which to deal with this issue, and this issue is at the crux of this conversation as we carry this conversation throughout. So, R.F.M., I wanna, I wanna throw one of these out at you, and I just want you to explain to the listener from the apologetic standpoint what these solutions involve. Uh, we'll get into whether they hold up or not later on. But let's start with what the apologist does to address this issue. And the first one is a missing scroll uh, or maybe multiple missing scroll scrolls. Uh, maybe explain that one to the listener. Okay. Well, there's uh, really two basic camps that
0: apologists have to go to. Now, first off, I have to imagine what would have happened if – what Joseph Smith had said was actually true, that he did translate accurately these scrolls into the book of Abraham. The scrolls or fragments of them are found in nineteen sixty six, the church gets them in nineteen sixty seven. Egyptologists look at it, and holy Toledo, we translated these scroll fragments, and actually this is the Book of Abraham, as Joseph Smith translated it. That's what we It were would have t- been a bullseye to the extent that everyone in the world would have had to have joined the church. Exactly. And if Joseph Smith, what he said he was doing, what his scribe said he was doing, what the church taught he was doing for 150 years approximately, or 130 years before they found the scrolls, if that had been supported by the translation of these scrolls, that would have been case closed. Joseph Smith was a prophet. Let's all join the Mormon church. So, But that's not what happened. And that is why... Thousands and thousands of pages have been written on the book of Abraham since that time. You don't have to write thousands and thousands of pages on the book of Abraham if it matches the scrolls. One sentence will do it. Case closed. But that's what's generated everything, because the thousands and thousands of pages that I'm talking about are written by and assembled by apologists as alternate explanations for why it is that the book of Abraham does not match the papyrus. So now having set that forward, um, one of the first things and one of the major camps is, well, then, if the book of Abraham does not match the papyrus fragments, then the book of Abraham must be on parts of the scrolls that Joseph Smith had that are not the papyrus fragments that were found. And that's when you get into two subsets of that. Either the book of Abraham comes from a missing scroll that wasn't found, or maybe it was found On another place, on the same scroll of the fragments that were found, but it's just not represented in the fragments that were found. It was way, way, way down on the scroll, and the fragments were from way, way up on the scroll. And therefore, we're going to make an argument from silence, which, logically speaking, is about the weakest argument you can make. We're going to make an argument from silence saying, well, yeah, it doesn't match the fragments that were found, but it was somewhere else on the scroll But we just don't have those scrolls yet because they were lost or those parts of the scrolls were
1: lost. Right. So pieces of the scrolls have either, yes, parts of these were in the Chicago Museum and burned up in a fire – Maybe they were stored in another cornerstone of the mansion house and deteriorated with the weather. Like we can come up with a thousand reasons, but it all hinges on the fact that whatever Joseph had, we don't have all of that in our possession today. Some of it's missing and whatever is missing, that's where the book of Abraham is. Right. And if I can mention just a couple of things here, now that we're
0: talking about this specific apologetic facsimile, number one. Uh, If you don't know what it looks like or can't remember, please open your scriptures to the book of Abraham and you will see facsimile number one. This is a lion couch scene. That's what Egyptologists call it. That's because the bedstead that the figure identified as Abraham is lying upon is called a lion couch. And if you look at it, it has a tail on one end. It has a lion's head on the other of the bedstead. It even has the feet of a lion. So this is called a lion couch And this is called a lying couch scene. It is a type of scene that is readily identifiable by Egyptologists today because there are a number of them that have been found in other scrolls. It was a very common motif found either in breathing permits or in books of the dead. So you've got this uh, facsimile number one. Facsimile number one is showing the scene that is described in the book of Abraham, chapter one. Joseph Smith's translation of the elements and the figures in facsimile number one, describe it as the moment where Abraham is about to be sacrificed by the priest. And you can see the priest holding the knife and Abraham lying on the couch. And then a bird in the upper right-hand corner of the picture, which is identified by Joseph Smith as the angel of the Lord, which is coming down to save him right when Abraham is about to get killed. And so the book of Abraham, chapter one, goes on and describes that scene and it tells the story of what's going on there. So the first thing to note is that it would appear then it would appear then that the book of Abraham is translating this scene from the breathing permit that was found in the papyrus fragments in the mid 1960s. It seems indisputable that that would be the case. So the response from the apologists has been, well, not so fast there, Bubba Louie. These figures and these scenes and these drawings and these pictures that Egyptologists put in their scrolls are not always right next to the scene that's being described. In other words, They're saying, you know, these figures, you might think that they're next to what's being described in the hieroglyphs because that would make sense. But in some scrolls, these figures are way removed from the writing that's describing the scene. So they have to go there in order to distance facsimile number one from the book of Abraham, chapter one. Did that part make sense so far, Bill?
1: Yeah, and I just want to make sure it does make sense to me understanding the material. I want to make sure it makes sense to the listener. So the idea is that... Uh, where this facsimile is on the papyri, we, uh, as Egyptologists and scholars, and for you and me, amateur scholars of this issue, we seem to see it as rational and logical to point exactly at the area where Joseph is translating. Because that doesn't match up, because that's not the book of Abraham, apologists have um come up with the idea that just because the facsimile is in this place doesn't mean the text nearby is associated with that facsimile. It can be somewhere else. And hence we still can give credibility to the fact that if there's some missing papyri and and surely in this camp, there must be that still can be where the book of Abraham is. Exactly. Even though facsimile number one was recovered in the
0: papyri in the 1960s, It could have been so far removed from the book of Abraham that the book of Abraham itself could still be weighed down on the scroll and completely removed from that facsimile. Now, that's the apologetic response. So if you ever see that or have read about it, that's what's going on. And that's what's trying to be accomplished. The problem is, is that the book of Abraham itself defeats that argument. Because in chapter 1 of the book of Abraham, verses 12 through 14, it makes it clear that this drawing, facsimile number 1, is at the commencement of the book of Abraham. In other words, the book of Abraham locates the facsimile number 1 as being at the very beginning of the text of the book of Abraham. Do you have your book of Abraham with you, Bill? And if so, could you read those passages?
1: All right. So, Book of Abraham, Book of Abraham, Chapter One, uh, verses twelve through fourteen. And it came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me, that they might slay me also, as they did those virgins upon the altar. And that you may have a knowledge of this altar, I will refer you to the representation at the commencement of this record. That's that's Abraham in the very text of our scriptures pointing to the facsimile at the commencement of this record. It was made after the form of a bedstead, such as was had among the Chaldeans, and it stood before the gods of Elkanah, Libna, Mamakra, Korash, and also the godlike unto that of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that you may have an understanding of these gods. I have given you the fashion of them in the figures at the beginning. Again, Abraham pointing to the facsimile. Which manner of figures is called by the Chaldeans? Ralinos, which signifies hieroglyphics. So there's no if ands, or buts here, RFM. Abraham, in the very text of our book of Abraham, uh, tells us the very thing that you're pointing to, which is that the facsimile being spoken of that you mentioned with Abraham on the lion couch is at the commencement or beginning of this record.
0: Right, so this is one of the two major pieces of evidence that Joseph Smith was, in fact, translating from the papyrus that was discovered in the 1960s. And I should just call this the Joseph Smith papyri because that's sort of what it's called. The 11 fragments are collectively called the Joseph Smith papyri. The other one, though, the other uh, evidence that shows that Joseph Smith was translating from the Joseph Smith papyri and not from a lost scroll or somewhere else on the scroll requires us to go a little bit into the Kirtland Egyptian papers. Now the Kirtland Egyptian papers are a collection of papers as I say, finally produced by the church in the 1960s since they've been stuck in the vault for a long, long time. But these are the working papers from which the papyrus was translated into The Book of Abraham. Now, there are different parts of the Kirtland Egyptian papers, and it seems very confusing. And I know it was confusing to me for a long time until I finally just decided to sort of look into it. And once I looked into it, it wasn't that confusing at all. The main thing we want to talk about is the collection called The Egyptian Alphabet and Grammar and that is a smaller collection of documents within the Kirtland Egyptian Papers. But let me describe what this is. You can look it up on the internet. You can find images of it. You can actually find images of it at the Joseph Smith Papers Project now. If you imagine a sheet of paper in front of you and in the left hand margin is a single Egyptian character and then in the body of the paper next to the character is a paragraph of the book of Abraham and then a little bit further down once again in the margin on the left is another Egyptian character and next to that is another sentence or paragraph from the book of Abraham and then down below that is another Egyptian character and so on and so several uh, six seven Egyptian characters are found in the margins and then in the body of the same paper right next to the characters and for all intents and purposes the translation of these Egyptian characters, you will find a substantial body of the book of Abraham written out on the paper next to those characters. So when scholars look at this, at least scholars that don't have a particular apologetic axe to grind, the most reasonable and straightforward understanding of these documents is that Joseph Smith was interpreting the Egyptian character in the margin as the book of Abraham and so on down through. Are there any questions about that? Is that clear so far, Bill?
1: Yeah, that seems to make sense that essentially what it looks like is what we would kind of call a dictionary with this Egyptian hieroglyphic and then the portion of the book of Abraham associated uh, with that hieroglyphic symbol. And And it feels like, again, The most rational, logical way to look at that document is that as they were going through these symbols, they wrote, as you point out in the left-hand margin, a hieroglyphic symbol. And then on the right-hand side, the text of the English version of the book of Abraham that Joseph Smith translates associated uh, with that symbol. You'll see that to to move away from this, some of the... um, explanations that that apologists have given uh, is to essentially either, A, disconnect Joseph Smith from this. So his scribes are making this connection, but it's on their own, completely disconnected from Joseph Smith in the actual translation, or to come up with the solution that while it looks like they're writing a symbol down and then writing a portion of the book of Abraham, that they're doing something entirely different, and it just looks like they're doing this other thing that looks like kind of a dictionary.
0: Right. And as I studied the book of Abraham, you see... um It's not easy to find a source that will just take you through step by step as to what is going on. You're kind of thrown into this scholarly debate on all these different side issues. And what I was finding out was that there was a lot of scholarly debate about whether Joseph Smith had anything to do with the Egyptian and grammar. Because, of course, it's not written in his handwriting. He wrote hardly anything except maybe some letters that we have in his own handwriting, he typically used scribes like he did with the Book of Mormon. Well, he used scribes with the Book of Abraham as well. So the handwriting is not Joseph Smith's, it's his scribes. And so there's all these different arguments going on saying Joseph Smith didn't have anything to do with this. No, Joseph Smith did have something to do with it. And the argument went on back and forth. And I'm sitting here, thrust into the middle of this controversy, and from my point of view, I've got no idea why this argument is going on. Why is this argument so important? to these people. That's what I didn't understand. So of course, you know, I didn't really hook into the argument or really think that much about it or care that much about it until I went one step deeper to find out why is it that these guys are arguing so much on this one issue which seems to be not that important. And the critical reason that they're arguing about this is because the Egyptian characters that are found on in the margins of the Egyptian alphabet and grammar are Egyptian characters that are found next to each other in sequence on the Joseph Smith papyri. So these are not just random characters. They're not characters that Joseph Smith or anybody else made up. They are actually Egyptian characters. They were actually transcribed or copied from the papyrus, the Joseph Smith papyri, the ones that we have, these characters appear in sequence in the Joseph Smith papyri in the same order that they appear in the Egyptian alphabet and grammar as a translation of the book of Abraham and even more critically they appear in a piece of the Joseph Smith papyri that is immediately adjacent to facsimile number one. So everything that Joseph Smith says here in those verses that you read from the book of Abraham exactly correspond to the Egyptian characters that he was translating as manifest in the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, that they were immediately connected in the Smith papyri to facsimile number one. And therefore, from that perspective, it makes absolute sense for chapter one, verses 12 through 14 to say that And that you may have a knowledge of this altar, I will refer you to the representation at the commencement of this record. Because what Joseph Smith is doing, at least in his mind, or at least as presenting, what he's presenting is doing, is translating Egyptian characters that are immediately adjacent to facsimile number one, and therefore verses 12 through 14 make absolute sense. What that completely contradicts, however, is the apologetic argument that the Book of Abraham appears somewhere else in the scroll, some distance away from facsimile number one, or the Book of Abraham appears in another scroll completely unrelated to facsimile number one. Did that part make sense?
1: Yeah, so to, to reiterate that, the Book of Abraham scriptural text that we have in our Pearl of Great Price tells us that there's the facsimile And then immediately following the facsimile is the very text of the book of Abraham. Then the Egyptian alphabet and grammar then tells us the exact same thing. Here's the very symbols that follow the facsimile. And here's the translated text that equals the book of Abraham. In other words, all roads lead to Rome uh, on this issue. And it becomes an obfuscation for anybody in the apologetic field who's trying to argue for a missing papyri or missing scroll, like all the data is working against them. All the data points to we have the papyri. That Joseph thought was the book of Abraham. We have the facsimile, we have the hieroglyphics that follow, and we have the book of Abraham English translated text itself in verses 12 through 14 that also testify that we have the very section from which Joseph claimed were the writings of Abraham written by his own hand. Exactly. And when you understand that, then
0: all of a sudden I understood why there's all this debate about what Joseph Smith had to do with the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. Because the apologists, with this information already in their mind, and they know that if Joseph Smith really was translating these characters, which are right next to facsimile one on the Joseph Smith papyri, if he really, really did that or presented as doing that, then they can no longer make the argument that, The book of Abraham is on a missing scroll or somewhere else on a separate part of the scroll unrelated to facsimile number one. And it is because of that fact that those apologists that are still maintaining that Joseph Smith translated something from the scroll that really was the book of Abraham written in Egyptian, it is because of that fact that they have to start making arguments that are weak arguments, but they've got to make them. They have to disassociate Joseph Smith from the translation process is manifest in the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. They have to say, hey, Joseph Smith had nothing to do with this. This was just his scribes goofing around, trying to figure things out on their own. It had nothing to do with uh, Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was off doing something else at the time. He didn't know anything about this. He wasn't sanctioning this. So that's one of the arguments right, that the apologists use to try and get out of this uh, thorny problem that is created by the evidence. But as has been noted by other people, including Robert Rittner, a noted Egyptologist, a non-Mormon Egyptologist, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later, as noted by him, it really doesn't get you anywhere to try and pawn it off on Joseph Smith's scribes because ultimately Joseph Smith did take responsibility for the book of Abraham as a revealed and translated text. So you can't just say, oh, his scribes are off doing stuff on their own because Joseph Smith later on produces the book of Abraham and publishes it and says he's the one who translated
1: Yeah, and you you also have apologists trying to disconnect the words, the writings of Abraham written by his own hand in the times and seasons. But again, the same issue comes up, which is that Joseph Smith is the editor of that periodical, uh, that newspaper. So while the apologists like to point to there's some... You know, it could be somebody else who's writing that introduction. Uh, It could be other people who are working with the times and seasons. The reality is that Joseph Smith is the editor. At some point, like the buck stops here, Joseph is responsible for all of these different tangents. I also want to add, uh, RFM, uh, there is evidence that the apologists point to, to argue in favor of a missing scroll, um, one of those, I'll read a couple of these. The, the record of Abraham and Joseph found with the mummies is beautifully written on papyrus with black and a small part red ink or paint in perfect preservation. The characters are such that you find upon the coffins of mummies, hieroglyphics, etc. with many characters of letters like the present form of, of the Hebrew without points. This is History of the Church, volume 2, page 348. Um, so it's, and the papyri that we have doesn't have any red ink on it. So, uh, one of the arguments here is that there's this statement in the history of the church that the pieces that Joseph is working with have red ink and that the actual papyri we have in our, in our possession today does not. Here's the trouble. The, the, uh, these passages in the surrounding passages, um, were a reworking of the letter. And they show that they're not Joseph Smith's words, but Cowdery's words as adapted by the editors of the history. Now, you have to recognize, this is one of the things we have to stop at. Uh, we like to think, as, a, as an Orthodox Mormon that when we go back into the early documents of the church, history of the church and others, that whoever the words are being attributed to, Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, whoever, that those words belong to those people. Those people wrote or said those things. We now know that much later, people like B.H. Roberts, Brigham Young, and others made Uh, editorial changes to these documents. And this is one of those instances where it's attributed to Joseph Smith. But we now know both inside and outside the church, the scholars agree that this is a later editing and is not actually the words of Joseph Smith. So you take that out and you set that aside. Now here's the second one. There are quotes about a missing scroll that are used. Uh, One story is attributed to Joseph F. Smith, and it was used by Hugh Nibley. This is where it gets its start. The first time we see this is Hugh Nibley mentions it. It says, when unrolled on the floor, extended through two rooms of the mansion house. uh, And that's the quote. And it's talking about this papyri. So we assume there's some piece of scroll that rolled out through two rooms of the mansion house. I can't imagine how long of a piece that was. Number one, We do not have any real source for this. It's attributed to Joseph F. Smith, but we actually have no place to say, like, go look at that document and there that quote exists. It's almost as if Nibley pulls this one out of whole cloth, number one. Number two, imagine how fragile this papyrus is. And who in the heck is trying to unroll this thing across the mansion house? Um, you begin to recognize like how deteriorated a piece that big would be and how much it would fall apart. There are two more quotes that substantiate this Joseph S. Smith quote, but they are also vague. Charlotte Haven wrote to her mother about being shown the mummies and papyrus by Lucy Max Smith in March 1843. Haven related that Lucy... Quote, opened a long roll of manuscript, unquote, that she identified as, quote, the writing of Abraham and Isaac, unquote. Here's the other issue. People say, well, it's a long scroll. See, there it is. There's that long scroll. What Charlotte Haven would have considered to be a long scroll, we have no idea. So what does a typical piece of paper look like in the the mid-1800s versus anything longer than that being considered a long scroll? The papyri fragments that we have in the document that most Egyptologists consider it to be and what it would have looked like would have been a few feet in length. That is certainly much longer than a typical piece of paper and hence would have still allowed room to call it a long scroll. The last one, in 1857, summary of the contents of Wyman's Museum mentions, quote, papyrus scrolls, unquote, then clarifies, quote, some large fragments of Egyptian papyrus scrolls with periodic or priestly inscriptions and drawings representing the judgment of the dead, many Egyptian gods and sacred animals with certain chapters from old Egyptian sacred books, unquote. That one is too vague to know exactly what it's pointing at. It may be the papyrus related to uh, what Joseph Smith had. It may be something entirely different. These three quotes, while used to support a a missing long scroll, when we look at them, and if we're just rational and logical, they're just not that strong.
0: Uh, No, but you've given a good illustration, I think, of how confusing the entire Book of Abraham issue and issues become, because in order to try and argue that the Book of Abraham text is somewhere else on the scrolls, we have all of these different quotes promoted by apologists. We have John Gee himself, a Mormon who is an Egyptologist. Tying himself in knots with mathematical formulae, trying to show that the winding measurements of the scroll show that it was really, really long. And then there's a whole separate debate about the mathematical formula he uses, right? And was it really long? Was it really short? But all of that makes no difference. This is all a red herring. And the reason it's a red herring is this. Because of what we just talked about. Okay, The book of Abraham, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, ties it to facsimile number 1. The Kirtland Egyptian papers, specifically the Egyptian alphabet and grammar that we talked about at some length, and that's why we talked about it at some length, Bill, specifically ties the characters on the Joseph Smith papyri immediately adjacent to facsimile number 1 as it's represented on the Joseph Smith papyri with the book of Abraham text. Everything else is a red herring. That's what Joseph Smith used to translate the book of Abraham. It has been found. It's right next to facsimile number one, case
1: closed. Yeah, and and so there there's two things going on, which is that, one, you're pointing to the fact that all the data we do have uh, within the book of Abraham text and within the Kirtland Egyptian papers— points to the very papyri we have in our possession and the facsimiles that we have in our possession and says, like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Here's the very spot that... Uh that Joseph claims to be translating into the book of Abraham. The other thing you have, uh, and I want to point this out, and again, I don't want to muddy the waters. I'm not trying to uh, make this more complicated for the listener. But the other thing you have is that there's this tangent evidence that the apologist is pointing at and says, I don't care what the uh, Kirtland alphabet and grammar says. I don't care what the book of Abraham says. Uh, I have to hold the ground that this papyri is the book of Abraham. And hence I have to dismiss that hard evidence and I have to pick out these tangent pieces of evidence to support that even though it looks like one thing is going on, something else must be going on. And there is evidence, again, that also pushes back against the apologist and the evidence they're using. Here's a couple of them. An early Egyptologist named Gustavus Sepharth uh, viewed the missing papyrus in 1856 and described only the whore text in facsimile three. He gave no indication of another text on the scroll and in fact, explicitly denied that the scroll contained a record of Abraham. First, second, Claus Bear, who would be considered an anti-Mormon, um, but was offering his, his input as a critic of the church predicted that the missing portion of the Hortex... So again, John Gee, as you pointed out earlier, has all these machinations for trying to decide how long this scroll would be. Claus Baer predicted that the missing portion of the Hortex would be around 60 centimeters. Others who have attempted the estimate of the missing length agree almost exactly with Baer's estimate So this will come into play later when Brian Hoglid, uh, we talk about some of the things that that he's been working on and he said recently. Um, But there's this idea that John Gee says like, this should be a really long scroll and that's not what we have. We should understand that there are other people who are determining the length of this scroll and they're all arriving at a much, much shorter piece that's fairly represented by what we have in our possession. Lastly, Why we know that a missing scroll does not matter, as you pointed out, RFM, we know exactly where Joseph was translating because of the Kirtland alphabet and grammar, and because of the book of Abraham itself, um, and that is on the existing papyri. Right. And
0: so you had said, Bill, uh, that you didn't want to confuse the listener any further, and you've been going uh, to quotes used by apologists dealing with the idea about the length of the scroll about there being a missing scroll, and you've taken up quite a bit of time doing it. I'm not criticizing you, you understand, but I want to use what you've done to make a point, which is that all of that is a red herring, as we've demonstrated. But to the extent that apologists are successful in shifting the discussion away from the fact that the Joseph Smith papyri doesn't match the book of Abraham, even though it's obviously the papyri Joseph Smith was using to translate the book of Abraham. To the extent that apologists are successful in shifting the discussion away from that into peripheral issues, which are red herrings, the apologists are succeeding.
1: Yeah. And, and I will simply add before we move on to the catalyst theory, um, which is exactly what you're saying. Every time an apologist tries to argue in favor of a missing scroll and starts to present all of this tangent evidence, all you have to do is come back to Abraham chapter 1, 12 through 14, and the Kirtland uh, Egyptian papers, specifically the alphabet and grammar document. And no matter what else they say, they're not, trust me, they're not going to address those two points. They don't because to do so crushes their argument immediately. That's exactly right. We need to keep them on task. We need to
0: keep them on what the real issue is. And I have to add this also parenthetically. The problems with the book of Abraham did not surface in the 1960s with the discovery of the Joseph Smith papyri. They have been going on for a long time, at least since around 1912. So I'm talking 100 years ago. And the reason why... Is because of Joseph Smith, excuse me, the Book of Abraham contains three facsimiles. They are reproductions of three facsimiles that were found on the papyrus that Joseph Smith had. So those were preserved. They'd been altered somewhat, but they were readily identifiable by Egyptologists in and around 1912. And six prominent Egyptologists at the time weighed in on Joseph Smith's translations of these three facsimiles because, as you know, if you look at the three facsimiles, you'll find different numbers in the figures of the facsimiles and corresponding to those figures with the numbers below is Joseph Smith's interpretation of what those figures in the facsimiles represent. And what the scholars have done as far back as 1912, the Egyptologists, based upon their growing understanding and learning about Egyptian, the Egyptian language, the Egyptian types of facsimiles, they show that Joseph Smith got basically every single interpretation wrong of the facsimiles. So this criticism has been alive and well long before the Egyptian papyri were rediscovered. It's simply that the rediscovery of the Egyptian papyri really drove a death nail into the Joseph Smith translation, which ended up being the book of Abraham.
1: Yeah. Because this is a standard Egyptian funerary text, other examples of these, this papyri, Uh, Exist And so we have an idea of what's there, what's not there. Uh, Robert Rittner, as we've already pointed to, uh, says that essentially we've got pretty much everything, that there may be another page or two, but we know what those two pages would be. Um, So again, I, I just don't see strength in the apologetic argument. The other thing we should note is this Kirtland Egyptian papers, if I'm not mistaken, there's 34 handwritten pages, and it's actually 184 pages, but most of it's blank there are 34 pages written on. We should acknowledge that four of those pages are in Joseph Smith's own handwriting. So as we try to disconnect him as one of the uh, apologetic arguments, we have to make to make this all work, to recognize that Joseph had his very hand in this work.
0: That's a good point. I wasn't aware of that. I'm glad you brought that up, Bill, but this is a vast mini tentacled subject as you can tell. And it's easy for an apologist to lead someone out into one of the tentacles and get them away from the head, the head of this subject, which is we have said over and over and which I will continue to repeat is that the papyrus bears no resemblance to the book of Abraham. One other thing I wanted to mention here, Bill, because it may be confusing to the listeners, is that we've talked about a cluster, just a handful of small Egyptian characters. That Joseph Smith used to translate basically the entire book of Abraham. Now that may seem very strange, and in fact it is strange by today's standards, to take one tiny Egyptian character and translate that as a paragraph of text in English from the book of Abraham. But what we understand now is that at the time, because Egyptian was not understood, it could not be interpreted. It could not be translated at the time. It was very commonly thought that Egyptian was a a symbolic language, that these little characters that are found were symbolic and and could contain entire paragraphs of meaning in them. In fact, there are examples, which I have seen of other people, not Mormon, not related to any of this, not claiming inspiration from God, attempting to translate Egyptian characters and coming up with huge paragraphs of text from simple characters, their translations were no more accurate than Joseph Smith's. But it demonstrates this idea was had at the time, and Joseph Smith's translation from one character into paragraphs of information follows in that trend, that line of thought that was prevalent at the time as to how Egyptian could be translated.
1: Right, that there's not only hieroglyphics, for instance, uh, on some level maybe the facsimiles have these images on them and these images are telling a story, but that the characters next to the facsimile uh, were thought to also represent large portions of words when that's not actually the case. Right. And so when Egyptologists take
0: this cluster of hieroglyphs that Joseph Smith translated into basically the entire book of Abraham, I have to keep saying basically because the entirety is not represented in the Egyptian papers, just a large part. So, The entirety of the book of Abraham, Um, when Egyptologists actually look at the same characters
1: and translate them correctly, it ends up being a couple of words. Yeah, it's not much at all. Those who are trying to argue in favor of whatever papyri Joseph had, had a direct correlation or connection to what we have today as the book of Abraham, those who have made that argument, that argument is weak, we've already shown it, doesn't hold up. So now we've had to come up with a new solution. The moment this papyri surfaces in the 1960s, the church and its apologists have had to come up with a different answer because anybody who knows the material can easily defeat this missing scroll or missing papyrus theory. Hence, we need something new. And what they've come up with is something called the catalyst theory. And in the catalyst theory, uh, essentially, what we're arguing is that while Joseph Smith thought he had something going on uh, with that papyri that there was a connection, the reality was that Joseph really isn't doing translation the way we define translation. He's not looking at characters and coming up with what words those mean. because he's not he doesn't know Egyptian any better than you and I, uh, RFM. Uh, in fact, much worse because you and I can now look onto a computer and see what things mean. What Joseph had to do was depend on God to place into his brain a uh, translated text. So God is giving Joseph the book of Abraham text while Joseph perhaps is looking at the papyri. And God seemingly doesn't tell Joseph, hey, these two aren't connected. I'll let you continue to think. That you're working with the papyri, but the reality is I'm giving you a text completely unconnected to the papyri that is the book of Abraham, uh, and that has been labeled the catalyst theory. Want to get your thoughts on that one? Yeah, let me reformulate that a little bit. Um, You're absolutely correct. Here's
0: how I look at it. The catalyst theory was created as a response to the fact that the book of Abraham is not on the Joseph Smith Papyri. So as we talked about, one response is, oh, well, the book of Abraham must be on a different scroll or somewhere else on the other papyri. We've shown why that doesn't make sense and why that flies in the face of the facts. Now, other faithful Latter-day Saints understand that that first apologist theory, the missing scroll theory, we'll call it, doesn't comport with the facts, and therefore they have to come up with something else, another theory that explains the fact that the book of Abraham is not on the scrolls and it's not on the fragments that were found even though it should be. So the theory is that the book of Abraham is inspired even though it has nothing to do with the scrolls from which Joseph Smith translated it. It is inspired though unrelated to it. And now what you were talking about end up being secondary conclusions that have to be drawn from the catalyst theory. Now, first off, the beauty of the catalyst theory is that it gets you out of the problem that we've been talking about with the discovery of the scrolls, right? So if Joseph Smith is receiving an inspired text that has nothing to do with the scrolls, well, then obviously that problem is solved. Unfortunately, it creates additional problems, and that's what you were talking about, Bill. The additional problems it creates is, if the catalyst theory is true, and Joseph Smith was receiving an inspired text that had nothing to do with the scrolls, why is it that Joseph Smith presents himself as translating the characters into the book of Abraham? Why is it that that's what all the scribes said he was doing? Why is it that Joseph Smith spent $2,400, $67,000 in today's money, of church funds to acquire these scrolls because he thought they were so important that he wanted the chance to translate them and present them to the world, which he did as scripture in the Book of Abraham. So now you run into this other problem with the catalyst theory. If this is not a translation, why did Joseph Smith say it was a translation? Well, now you get to that second part that you were talking about, which is, okay, Joseph Smith must have thought he was translating and looking at the characters and coming up with the Book of Abraham, but actually he was not translating. Joseph Smith was wrong about the fact he was translating. Joseph Smith thought he was translating the characters, while at the same time God is beaming down or revealing to him a text that is inspired that has nothing to do with the characters that Joseph Smith thinks that he is translating. So that becomes a huge problem for the Catalyst Theory. But they're up to the task, and so they will suggest then that, well, that's just sort of the way it was. You know, this is a catalyst theory. By the way, the catalyst part means that the possession of the papyri in Joseph Smith's attempt to translate the characters did not yield a real translation, but it was the catalyst for Joseph Smith to receive an inspired text from God that is the book of Abraham, even though Joseph Smith actually thought he was translating the scrolls into the book of Abraham. Do I have that about right?
1: Yeah, that essentially the two are not connected in the literal sense but that one gives Joseph reason to ask questions and encourages him to seek a a, a text from God thinking that it's on this papyri, but in reality, completely unconnected. Right. And like I I mentioned to you last night when we were discussing this,
0: uh, what this ends up saying is that Joseph Smith was wrong. His scribes were wrong. Everybody associated with his translation of the book of Abraham were wrong. All the presidents and leaders of the church for over 100 years who have continued to repeat what Joseph Smith taught and how he presented it as a direct translation of the writings of Abraham were wrong. But finally, finally now, in the latter part
1: of the 20th century, when this idea was first conceived, we got it right. Yeah, including, by the way, the very heading to the Pearl of Great Price into the Book of Abraham.
0: Yes. And once again, it needs to be underlined that the catalyst theory would never have come into existence and there would have never been a need for the catalyst theory, except for the discovery of the Joseph Smith papyri in the 1960s and the fact that it doesn't match the book of Abraham.
1: Yeah. And so now I want to go into a little bit of detail about why this catalyst theory doesn't work in more detail than we've already lined out. We've already lined out some of it. Um, One, Joseph, and we pointed out to some of this, Joseph claimed the papyri was the writings of Abraham, which under the catalyst theory isn't true. So Joseph had to have been uh, somehow uh, misunderstanding what was going on and been wrong about what that papyri was. Two, Joseph claimed that these writings were written by Abraham's own hand. Again, if the catalyst theory is correct, then God must be responsible on some level for either misleading Joseph or allowing Joseph to be wrong without correcting him um, about the identity of the author of the papyri and its characters. Number three, Joseph wrote down the very symbols of the papyri we have, along with a proposed meaning of those hieroglyphics and symbols, uh, the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. So again, if those symbols and that text are not connected. On some level, Joseph and his scribes under his direction uh, made a connection that was incorrect. Number four, Joseph Smith's translation and restoration of the facsimiles is incorrect. So the facsimiles, Joseph gives meaning to all of the things in these facsimiles, and they're all wrong. And we'll get to where the apologists argue like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. He got a couple of these things right. We'll get to those in a moment. But we need to understand that nobody's in disagreement here, both inside and outside the church. Critics argue that Joseph got everything wrong in the facsimiles, and apologists and those within the church argue that he got almost everything wrong in the facsimiles. So that's number four. Number five, the text of the book of Abraham itself. And I I really think, RFM, this is This is the one thing that you just can't figure out a loophole around, which is that in the book of Abraham itself, verses 12 through 14, it declares that the source of the book of Abraham has the facsimile one fragment at its commencement, which is the breathing permit of horror. If the catalyst theory is correct, then God must be responsible for instructing Joseph to record verses in the book of Abraham that incorrectly refer to facsimile number one fragment. Number six, the small Sensen characters. And, and correct me, because you and I talked about this, this morning. What is the sense in characters? Uh, Sensen characters? Sensen, that's
0: S-E-N, S-E-N. It's an uh, Egyptian word. It means breathing. And it's a, it's a technical term for the breathing permit of hor. So hor is the person. Hor is an individual. It's H-O-R. He's the guy for whom this breathing permit, uh, part of which is, which is represented by facsimile number one in the Joseph Smith papyri. He's the guy for whom this was created. It is a breathing permit. It's something that's buried with a dead person who has sufficient means to be able to afford to get scribes to draw this up for him. And it's basically a guide to the afterworld so that after you're dead, you can navigate uh, the um, the spirit world, whatever it is the Egyptians believed in, to
1: successfully arrive at the good place where good people should go. Perfect. So the, the small sense in character. So when we say that, we're talking about the characters on the breathing permit of Hor are copied in order into the manuscripts where they are translated into the book of Abraham. Therefore, Joseph Smith's own manuscripts indicate that the source of the book of Abraham is the small sense in uh, the breathing permit of whore. If the catalyst theory is correct, then God must be responsible for misleading Joseph Smith to believe that the source of the book of Abraham was the breathing permit of whore. Number seven, the Egyptian alphabet ends with two characters, which appear into Abraham 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Therefore, if the Egyptian alphabet indicates that the source of the book of Abraham is the small sensin, that means that the catalyst theory, if correct, then God must be responsible for misleading Joseph Smith to believe that the source of the book of Abraham was in the breathing permit of whore. All of this together, again, if anybody wants to present the catalyst theory and you'll notice this, whenever apologists talk about the missing scroll or talk about a catalyst theory, they never, ever, ever, never, ever, never, ever, ever want to get into why these, neither one of these work. And what I hate RFM about apologetics is there's this game it's like playing musical chairs. So what happens is when we get into a conversation with someone trying to defend the church, you have to keep them on point. Otherwise, they'll keep shifting the argument to one of the other potential flawed theories of the book of Abraham. So they might throw out the catalyst theory. And the moment you throw out anything that questions that or pushes back they will move to the missing scroll theory. And the moment you push against that, now they're back to the catalyst theory. You have to ensure that in these conversations, you hold them on point and you get them into a place where they have to acknowledge that the evidence we have makes both the long scroll that's missing as well as a catalyst theory, not only implausible, but absurd absurd, irrational, illogical, and so far problematic that one has to acknowledge their being irrational and still holding to either one of those two theories. Yes, that's a good
0: point. And Bill, you are uh, very well read in church history and on church doctrine. You are very articulate and you are very capable in holding people on a subject that they don't want to be on. Which is why no LDS apologist will appear on your program to discuss any of these issues with you.
1: Yeah, it would be easy. To be honest, it would be easy if Kerry Molstein or John Gee or Daniel C. Peterson uh, or any other apologist, and I welcome it. Come on, let's just talk about the book of Abraham. We'll take four hours, and every time I ask a question, I'll give you as long as you want to answer. But what I would ask is that I'm allowed to ask follow-up questions and that you need to answer those follow-up questions. And as you pointed out, no apologist wants to come on and tackle that because they know where the conversation goes. Each one of these two theories, and these are the only real two theories. I mean, there's also an idea, I should throw this out, there's also an idea that um, the papyri is the book of Abraham, but it's been repurposed. In other words, the document is written. It means this one thing, which is an a standard Egyptian funerary text, but that somehow along the way, um, those who believed in Abraham's prophetic mission took this document and assigned it new meaning. And Joseph Smith is simply picking up on that. You have to recognize that's, there's no evidence. That's irrational. It's illogical. And it is sem- essentially allows you to hold a position, but with zero evidence to defend it. It's like saying there are magical flying unicorns and you can't prove me wrong. Hence, I'm going to continue to believe in magical flying unicorns. No, you can't argue with somebody like that. So if somebody offers that kind of position, it's useless. There's, there's no evidence. It's simply the choice that I want to believe in magical flying unicorns. And so I'm going to hold that position no matter what.
0: Right. Good point. I want to make just two more comments in general about the catalyst theory and problems that I see with it. The first of which is that, remember the beauty of the catalyst theory is that it is a theory then that can account for the inspiration and scripture of the book of Abraham without it having anything to do with the papyri from which Joseph Smith translated it. That's the beauty of it. The problem with it is the exact same thing, and the real problem with it is that the catalyst theory then becomes indistinguishable from an intentional fraud on Joseph Smith's part. Most people, if they look at the Joseph Smith papyri, and the book of Abraham, and they find out as the church admits that the two have nothing to do with each other in spite of the fact that Joseph Smith claimed to translate one into the other, most people would look at that and say, okay, that's a fraud. That's what we would call a fraud. He didn't know what he was doing. He was making stuff up. He pawned it off on his followers as being a translation because they didn't know any better because who can translate Egyptian at that time and place? So the catalyst theory is indistinguishable from an intentional fraud. The second part, which has a bit to do with what you said before, Bill, is that Joseph Smith thought the scrolls contained the writings of Abraham. We know that because he said so. Okay, on what basis did Joseph Smith think the papyrus claimed, excuse me, the papyrus contained the writings of Abraham? Well, it must have something to do with inspiration because he couldn't know it otherwise because he could not read Egyptian. And in fact, they had nothing to do with Abraham, as we found out. So how does he know that? Well, it must be through inspiration or revelation. Right, Bill? Yeah, that seems like it's the
1: only space to go to.
0: And on top of that, Joseph Smith claims that he is translating the characters into the book of Abraham. Well, how would he do that unless it was by inspiration? So when you get to that point, and the catalyst theorist has to acknowledge these points... When you get to that point, and you say Joseph Smith wrongly, by inspiration, wrongly thought these scrolls contained the book of Abraham, and Joseph Smith, by inspiration, wrongly thought he was translating the characters on the scrolls into the book of Abraham. If Joseph Smith gets those two fundamental facts wrong, which he could have only known by inspiration, on what basis is it that we are going to think that the text that Joseph Smith produced was right? By inspiration, because you feel elevation, emotion. Yeah, uh, there, there's there's no there's no logical basis. In fact, the argument contradicts itself from the catalyst theory perspective. So, if I could just mention a couple things here, Bill. So, those are the two main theories now that are left to believing Mormons. There's the missing scroll theory. It's really on there. We just don't have it. And then there's the catalyst theory, which is it really is on there, but it was received by inspiration, so it's completely different than what was on the papyri. Uh, I'm not sure if I made that clear, I think I did. But those are the two competing theories now. And amazingly, we have two Egyptologists in the church who are arguing to this day for the missing scroll theory, which is in the face of the evidence. And there are other people who see the evidence that Joseph Smith translated the papyri into the book of Abraham and they go to the catalyst theory, right? Because that's the only place that's left for them. Uh, There's an old expression that the last refuge of a scoundrel is patriotism. Well, with the book of Abraham, the last refuge of a believing Mormon is the catalyst theory. So we've got very intelligent people on both sides of the issue. We've got two Mormon Egyptologists, John Gee and Kerry Muelstein, still maintaining the missing scroll theory, but we have other people doing the catalyst theory. And this is where I'd like you to talk about Brian Hauglid, because Brian Hauglid as recently, as eight years ago, is an LDS scholar who maintained the missing scroll theory along with John Gee and Kerry Muelstein, but has since that time, and even recently, shifted in the face of the evidence over to the catalyst theory, apparently. But he's at least shifted away from John Gee and Kerry Muhlstein.
1: Can you address that, Bill? Sure. So I interviewed uh, Brian Hoglid. Um, man, it had to have been probably 2014. We had a conversation on the Book of Abraham, and he acknowledged all the problems we're talking about. But he clung to the fact that the Book of Abraham still comes off to him as a sacred text. So it's it's the game that Terrell Givens has played, which is, I don't want to talk about the translation. I agree with you that that's a complete mess. I don't know what to do with that. But what I do know is that the book of Abraham is scripture to me. I feel the Holy Ghost and I see the teachings within the book of Abraham as being uh, inspired and prophetic. Uh, So that's the view. But that view, when you ignore the translation issues, it's almost like, um, I'm trying to think of an analogy. It's, It's it's almost like skipping how something got put together and only worrying about like the final product. But the problem is that how it got put together is essential to understanding the final product. So if I try to tell you that, you know, cars existed in uh, 1000 BC, like, you know, that's not true because those materials aren't there. So when I claim the book of Abraham is a inspired prophetic scriptural text in the sense that Mormonism imposes it, but then I acknowledge, like, I don't want to talk about how we got it, but the reality of how we got it is the materials aren't sufficient to create it, then we have a problem. So Brian Hoglid has written several books, and Brian I find to be very vulnerable, uh, authentic uh, to the conversation. So when you ask him a question, he gives you an honest, sincere answer. Uh, When you go back and look at these books, Brian is deeply arguing in favor of a scriptural text of the book of Abraham as being inspired, even though the translation is messy. Many people point to to that uh, that argument and simply dismiss the translation and see the text as inspired. Here's the trouble. Brian's own faith has moved and shifted to the point where he doesn't stand anymore behind, the arguments he made in his own writings in the past and the things that he has said up till recently. Uh, We should also note here that Brian Hoglid and Robin Scott Jensen have been working directly with the Joseph Smith Papers project on the book of Abraham and all the texts that have been involved with it. Now, when you know that, you'll understand that Brian Hoglid and both and him and Robin Scott Jensen, both have arrived at a different conclusion than Kerry Molstein and John Gee. Robin Scott Jensen still holds on to this catalyst theory and recognizes all the messiness we've spoken about in the translation issues of the book of Abraham. But Brian Hoglet has moved even further. Again, here's what he says, quote, for the record, I no longer hold the views that may have been quoted from my 2010 book in these videos. And the videos he's talking about are Dan Vogel's videos. Dan Vogel is a non-believer, crucial scholar to Mormonism, very good scholar, uh, uh, well-received and seen as credible, seen as uh, deeply honest. Uh, To his work. Now he's a non believer, so he argues in favor of Mormonism not uh, being connected to the divine, but being a man made thing. But the scholarship, the sources, the things he talks about, both inside and outside the church, are seen as he is a serious scholar. Uh, so the videos are Dan Vogel's videos. Dan has a set of I think seven videos that deconstruct the Book of Abraham, pointing at much of the things that we're talking about. We'll link those in the source in the notes of this episode. So uh, he says again, for the record, I no longer hold the views that have been quoted from my 2010 book in these videos. I have moved on from my days as an outrageous—that's his words—outrageous apologist. In fact, I'm no longer interested or involved in apologetics in any way. I wholeheartedly agree with Dan, again, Dan Vogel, Dan's excellent assessment of the Abraham Egyptian documents in these videos. I now reject a missing Abraham manuscript. I agree that two of the Abraham manuscripts were simultaneously dictated. I agree that the Egyptian papers were used to produce the book of Abraham. I agree that only Abraham chapter 1 verses 1 through chapter 2 verse 18 were produced in 1835 and that Abraham chapter 2 19 through 5 uh, verse 21 were produced in Nauvoo. Now that's a huge development and on and on. I no longer agree with Guy or Molstein. I find their apologetic scholarship and he puts that in quotes, which means he's degrading uh, their claiming scholarship on these things. It's not real scholarship is what he's saying. On the book of Abraham, and here's his word, abhorrent. One can find that I've changed my mind in my recent and forthcoming publications. The most recent... Joseph Smith Papers, Revelations in Translation, Volume 4, The Book of Abraham and Related Manuscripts, now on the shelves, is much more open to Dan's thinking on the origin of the Book of Abraham. My friend, Brent Metcalf, can attest to my transformative journey, unquote, Brian Haglid. That, to me, is damning. Um, When you understand what he's saying, why he's saying it, and the information it's based on, we have to understand this. When you dive into the Joseph Smith paper's manuscripts on the book of Abraham, what Brian is essentially saying is that the data contained in there forces us, imposes on us, and Robin Scott Jensen seems to be agreeing that it forces on us that we need to leave the missing scroll theory completely behind, as well as the scholarship and apologetics of people like Kerry Molstein and John Gee. Right. So
0: that is a huge transition, extremely important, extremely significant, extremely timely, because this post by Brian Haglid was just in November, just last month from this recording when he posted that. Um, But Daniel C. Peterson, the godfather of modern Mormon apologetics, and who would side with John Gee and Carrie Muhlstein for the missing scroll theory, apparently, when he was confronted with this statement by Brian Hauglid, do you know what Daniel C. Peterson's response was?
1: Uh, I do,
0: but I'd love to let you talk about it. I think you're a little more familiar with it. Oh, he dismissed it in one sentence.
1: He says, why should I particularly care what he has to say? Right, and and he also points to the fact that he's not an Egyptologist. So there's this idea, like you know, this guy is not credible. But get this: here's the problem with that RFM. John, uh, uh, Brian Hoglid is working on the Joseph Smith papers. In other words, the Church's own historical department finds Brian Hoglid credible enough to have him work on the on the the Uh, process and the project that the church sees as its best effort at being transparent and credible on this stuff.
0: Oh, yes. He's totally involved in BYU uh, scholarship. He's totally involved in uh, church scholarship relating to the book of Abraham. He was an associate professor uh, of ancient scripture. He may still be. Uh, at BYU. I mean, this guy is a professor at BYU in the Department of Ancient Scripture. He's not just some outsider. From 2014 to 2017, he was the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, which is the Farm's flagship publication. He currently serves as the director of the Laura F. Willis Center for Book of Mormon Studies, a part of BYU's Neal A. Maxwell Institute. He has published extensively on the book of Abraham. He's currently working on a project entitled "Mummies, Manuscripts and Making Scriptures. And he's working on that with Terrell Givens. And so the deal is this, he is a big deal. He knows his stuff. He just doesn't have an Egyptology degree. So here's Daniel C. Peterson, who has got to be rocked and upset at this shift and what he would consider an abandonment and perhaps a betrayal by Professor Hauglitt of the correct and true position of the missing scroll theory. And therefore he doesn't engage anything he has to say. He just dismisses him with a, well, he doesn't have an Egyptology degree. So why should I care much what he has to say?
1: Yeah. And a couple things happen here. One is that, let me ask you this, does Daniel C. Peterson have an Egyptology degree? No, no, of course not. So here's the other thing. Um, Other people do have Egyptology degrees, right? Like Robert Rittner. Is this guy a world-renowned Egyptologist? Of course, yes, but we dismiss him too. The trouble is, in the apologetic sandbox, We have all these people who originally show up to play in the sandbox. Brent Metcalf, Dan Vogel, uh, let's say Jonathan Streeter, um, Brian Hoglid, Robin Scott Jensen, Kerry Molstein, John Gee, Dan Peterson. Everybody shows up in the sandbox to play. And then suddenly we start creating a no true Scotsman fallacy where we start to say like, oh, all of these people are seeing messiness, and it's not adding up, and they see a deep problem. So what we're going to start doing is creating a litmus test for who we can trust. And what we're going to do is we're going to say they have to have an Egyptology degree. Let's add David Bakavoy, by the way, to the sandbox, who is a highly trained, highly educated scholar in biblical criticism and in biblical studies. Um, what the church, and, and and I want to even back off maybe from saying that, but certainly what certain apologists have done, namely John Gee, Kerry Molstein, and Dan Peterson, they've created uh, a litmus test and said, you have to be an Egyptologist. Nobody else has any right to speak on this. So now, Bakovoy has to leave, Daniel Peterson has to step outside the sandbox, but he still wants to watch the kids play. Uh, Brian Hoglid has to go. Um, Streeter's got to leave. Dan Vogel has to head out of the sandbox. And, and then they look back and there's still some people in there playing. There's Robert Rittner and there's others. And so now the next statement is now, not only do you have to be an Egyptologist, but you have to be a faithful, believing Mormon. You can't be a non-Mormon and you certainly can't be an ex-Mormon. And so everybody leaves the sandbox except for John Gee and Carrie Molstein, And those two guys just continually point to each other in every footnote of their work and keep holding on to this idea that there's a missing papyrus and they give their reasons for it, which I hope we'll get into here at some point. Um, But the reality is they've created a no true Scotsman fallacy and litmus test that essentially leave them as the only two men standing in the ring. And it creates an idea like, oh yeah, they're the only ones qualified. The reality is their position is absurd And by knocking everybody else out of the sandbox is the only way to continue holding that position.
0: No, you're absolutely right on that, Bill. It's uh, really what's going on, of course, is that the only people whose opinions are going to be respected and honored are those with the correct opinions, which means the opinions that line up with the missing scroll theory, at least from Daniel Peterson's point of view. The only people with the right opinions are the people who agree with me, and therefore everybody who does not agree with me must be discounted in one way or another. If it's Brian Hauglid, who is a believing member who once held the missing scroll theory and has transitioned away from that now as he has publicly proclaimed, well, he doesn't count because he's not an Egyptologist. Though, of course, he totally counted for Daniel Peterson before he made the shift, even though he wasn't an Egyptologist because before the shift he did hold the correct viewpoint, which was Daniel C. Peterson's viewpoint of the missing scroll theory. As to Robert Rittner or the entire world of Egyptologists who have paid any attention to the issue and have said the plain obvious fact that the Joseph Smith papyri have nothing to do with the book of Abraham and his translations of the Book of Abraham facsimiles has nothing to do with the figures in the facsimiles. For all of them, they're discounted just because, well, they're not believing Mormons. So there's always a reason, see, and those reasons are frequently contradictory. But Brian Hauglid illustrates, in unmistakable terms, the shifting natures and the contradictory uh, nature of those exclusions, because he's never been an Egyptologist, but he knows his stuff obviously from what i've read and what's available on the wikipedia website and his involvement in these uh, abraham studies at the highest level in the church but before he made the shift his opinion was acceptable and honored even though he was not an egyptologist now that he has made the shift he should not even care daniel c peterson doesn't care what he has to say why because he's not an egyptologist it's quite self-serving
1: yeah it's this ability to dismiss those who don't agree with you in spite of the things they're saying holding up and it should be noted at least as of today december 19th 2018 and uh, brian hoggland made this comment i believe back in november But as of December 19, 2018, the church still considers Brian Hoglid reliable and honest to the data in their use of him in their own Joseph Smith Papers project with him being one of the lead people along with Robin Scott Jensen. In looking at all of these Book of Abraham manuscripts and documents tied into the Joseph Smith papers project, the guy is credible simply because he doesn't have a degree in Egyptology, doesn't have a play in this. The guy is trusted by the church to know what he's talking about.
0: Right. And I'll just mention a couple of other things because I did dig up some of my big books about the Book of Abraham that I've studied over the years. I have done a lot of study in the decades that I have been an active member of the church, and the Book of Abraham has certainly been a large part of that study. But there was a massive book that was published by Farms uh, called Studies in the Book of Abraham Series. Um, there's a series of books, but this massive book is a collection of stories about Abraham in world texts that are ancient. It's called Traditions about the Early Life of Abraham. It was published in 2001, and it was compiled and edited by... John Gee and Brian Hauglid. Now, John Twetness also helped with that. He has since passed away. But the critical point is that Brian Hauglid was a co-compiler and co-editor of this book with John Gee. So you can see where he was considered to be and his expertise was considered to be by John Gee with whom now he holds a different opinion on the missing papyrus theory. Also, with John Gee, he was a co-editor of another book in the same series, which was called Astronomy, Papyrus, and Covenant. So John Gee thought very, very highly of him, and John Gee being the Mormon Egyptologist, you can't get better credentials than that, although John Gee may have changed his opinion about Brian Hauglid's um, scholarly abilities, much as Dan Peterson apparently has.
1: All right. So having so having said all that we've said so far, and, and essentially what we wanted to do so far was set up the story of the book of Abraham, the, the history of it, uh, what was proposed, why the critics claim it's a problem, how the apologists have responded to those problems with apologetic answers of a missing scroll and a catalyst theory. We've then uh, decimated... The Missing Scroll and the Catalyst Theory. And now we've begun to talk about the games being played in the background in apologetics and how the sandbox is being limited to only those who hold certain positions and by creating litmus test so as to only allow those uh, individuals to stay in the sandbox. We're going to stop there. That's episode number one. I think that's enough for you to digest and understand the book of Abraham inside and out. What we're going to do in part two is we're going to pick up talking about John Gee and Kerry Molstein specifically, showing the evidences that their perspective offers for why the missing scroll theory still has credibility we're going to decimate each of those responses. We will have some audio of Guy and Molstein to show you why they have the assumptions they do and to show how dishonest it is. I also want to tease something out. RFM, I want to give you complete props. The, the uh, apologists for the church have certain things they call evidence. They're not. But in part two, Radio Free Mormon is going to reveal to the world the greatest evidence for a missing scroll theory, and maybe even more than that, for us to take a more serious look at the papyri that we have and to recognize that there are things that those guys haven't even seen that are faith-promoting and testimony builders and have us look at the book of Abraham again in a new way so just when you thought we were tearing it all down tune in next time part two for radio free mormons unveiling of the greatest evidence of the book of abraham that nobody's ever oh picked my god up on yeah you didn't oversell that at all
0: bill uh really good job thanks for putting the pressure on i can guarantee <laughs> you that the reality will seem somewhat less impressive than the way bill has proposed it although i think it's significant and the remarkable thing to me is that neither John Gee nor Carrie Muelstein have seen this particular issue, this particular piece of evidence. And so um, I'm happy to share it with them and maybe they can put it into their quiver when they set forth evidences for the antiquity of the book of Abraham. Happy to help them out in that. Until next time, Bill real. This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.
1: King now Tom. when he was a young man, he never thought he'd see king people standing in to see the boy king. king How'd you get so funky? funky Did you do the bunkie? in Arizona, to king, king. Now Tom. if i know, known they'd line up just to see him. i take a. My favorite honking. Born in Arizona,
0: ooh, in the Babylonian King. Tuck, Dancing by the Nile,
1: Disco, Tuck, Tuck. The ladies love to style. Boss, Tuck, Tuck. Rockin' for my. Rockin' Tuck, Tuck. He ate a crocodile. Ooh. He gave his life for tourism. (laughs) Golden (laughs) Idols. He's an Egyptian.
0: we going